0: On June
1: 22, 2020, Representative Brian Cutler was elected the 141st Speaker of the House. The Speaker of the House is the oldest statewide elected office and has existed since 1682. The most notable Pennsylvania speaker was, of course, Benjamin Franklin, but he only served for six months in 1764, long before the founding of our great nation. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Speaker of the House Brian Cutler. Welcome to Brews and Views. I'm Matt Briette, President of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs. And I have a second-time guest with me. Uh, He has a new title, Speaker of the House Brian Cutler. Uh, Brian, thanks for joining me for Brews and Views again.
0: Yeah, absolutely, Matt. Looking forward to it.
1: I I went back to look at the last time we chatted. You were uh, my seventh guest. So it was Episode 7, which was hard to believe was back in January of 2018. And uh, your title then was Majority Whip, uh, and you already blew through another title. You're like one of these guys climbing in the corporate ladder, right? Uh, uh, You were elected Majority Leader uh, back in November of 2018. So um, a lot has happened since we sat down the last time here at Brews and Views. And folks that that don't know Brian's uh, um, backstory, go back to Episode 7. I think you'll really appreciate Uh, hearing Brian, how he grew up, and losing of his parents, and just really shaped the the man that he is today, someone of integrity. Uh, And I think that everybody, Democrats and Republicans, would say, look, Brian is a straight shooter. Uh, He's the guy, he'll tell you where he stands. He's not playing games. And I think that that's why, uh, Brian, it was very easy for you to become, uh, well, only the third Lancasterian. Uh, to become the Speaker of the House, 141st, I think, if our our counting is is correct, Um, and the first Speaker from Lancaster in nearly 100 years. Uh, So, uh, and on top of this, I think one of the fastest climbs from a rank-and-file member to becoming Speaker, uh, if I'm correct. Did I miss anything in there?
0: No, no, (laughs) I think you hit it all, Matt. Um, It certainly has been quite the journey since the last time I was on my role as whip uh, obviously was to be assistant floor leader and to count votes and figure out where the caucus was on issues Uh, honestly that role i think really created quite the foundation uh, that set me up to eventually run for leader when that spot became available and now speaker because the job of whip and our our new leader carrie benninghoff uh, also took roughly the same path he was whip previously now he's leader again uh, to replace me. Uh, the reason I share that's cuz you build those relationships yeah. with the members and you 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 go and you know you find out what's important to them, you find out what they can vote on or where they can be on a particular issue or if they have a concern, what they need changed in order to support it. And by working through the caucus like that, I think it naturally builds trust and then puts puts you in a position where if and when an opening occurs, uh, such as was the case for me, uh, 18 months ago uh, when leader Dave Reed uh, left the legislature, I became uh, you know, the assumed person who would run to replace him at that point. Uh, we came in and we had quite an aggressive calendar. Uh, we changed uh, the approach that we had really taken previously. Through 18 months, we had passed 559 bills in the House. 121 of those uh, were actually signed into law. There's actually 12 pending, I think, heading to the governor already. So that number will continue to go up. And if you look at past sessions, that aggressiveness far outpaces other sessions Mm -hmm. that we'd had previously with a full two-year term. And we're going to have another budget to pass, Uh, so we're also going to be building on that bill total. And for those individuals who, like me, are concerned about An overly broad or reaching government, don't worry, uh, nearly four dozen of those bills were repealers that were getting rid of old and outdated laws.
1: Yeah, just passing laws isn't necessarily a good thing, right? Right. Uh, Having a lot of laws, but you did uh, repeal a bunch of them. Uh, Brian, if we could take a step back just for, I mean, some of our listeners are well-versed with how state government works. Others uh, really it's uh, they're paying attention from afar uh, they're, you know they pay attention to politics because politics has gotten into their business, uh, not because they're they're political junkies uh, like we are. The Speaker of the House is elected by both Democrats and Republicans, the entire body, and then, as you go down, the majority leader is just elected by the caucus um, and so. And there's different roles here, uh, so maybe you can you, you described a bit about how WHIP you're right. kind of you're counting noses. You're like, how do we get to 102? Right, that's that's the magic number with 203 House members uh, to pass a bill. That your job is to count those noses, all of the eyes and and the nays. Um, and then as majority leader, which you served uh, really for less than two years uh, uh, here, uh, the function there, and then then talk about. Your your new role as the Speaker of the House. As
0: a majority leader, it really has two components to that job. Uh, The first is the day-to-day administration of the caucus, which means all 600 and some employees ultimately report to the majority leader's office. So that's employees in Harrisburg as well as district office employees. You set the personnel and policies for the caucus, the budget for the caucus and any expenditures related to the members and its employees. So it has an administrative side, but then it also has the policy side, which sets the calendar. And for those who may not be familiar with what the calendar does, it actually puts the bills on that will come to the floor for a vote. So the majority leader definitely drives the policy that the caucus will be advancing. So if My, it's
1: not on the calendar, it's like it's not a priority, right, or it's not uh, something that the House is going to consider. So uh, a law, some a lawmaker that's writing a bill wants to see their bill on the calendar, correct? Correct,
0: yeah. <laughs> Once it comes out of committee, uh, it would presumably go on the calendar. It would be caucus, which is when the Republicans and the Democrats each talk to their own members. And then from there— uh, my rule always was uh, work it from the committee up. If they had a majority of votes in the committee, then it was up to the chairman or the lady if she wanted to move the bill. And then if we had a majority of support in the caucus, then we would talk about moving it on the floor. I was very fortunate. I think all the bills that we moved always had a majority of our own caucus. Some of them were close. Mm-hmm. Uh, most were not, however. Most of them were unanimously supported by the caucus. And more importantly, most of the bills we moved also had Democrat votes, and sometimes it would be two or three, and sometimes it was as many as 24. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we certainly were trying to find that consensus on the policy. The other thing that we did that was very different was, in terms of the groupings of the bills, we, we adopted a theme motto where we would try to group all the similar bills so that it made it easier, because you had the same committee staff there available on the floor, you know, the same chairman Uh, And the committee members would be keyed in on the debate, and then you were able to be much more efficient in terms of moving the bill out of committee onto the floor and through the the amendment process and final passage. That also helped with messaging, and it helped with keeping our members focused on the different issues. Because while we might be doing jobs and economy this week, uh, we might be doing, you know, agriculture the following and we would it, we would interlay those schedules one over the other so that you were doing the committee work this week for the bills that you'd be r- running next week so there's a huge timing component involved with the majority leaders role and the big difference with the speaker is well. before you go sure. on to
1: the speaker uh because uh, you said well, hey we were moving bills getting consensus um It's uh, probably uh, an understatement to say you weren't getting consensus your last couple of months as the majority leader, as there was a lot of disagreement uh, with how Governor Wolf uh, was keeping businesses closed. And I think that probably uh, was uh, your biggest testing period, if you will, uh, in managing some of those things, managing caucus as well as the floor, um, because there were a number of outliers in Pennsylvania, right? We, we kept real estate closed, construction closed, uh, where Republicans are saying, hey, all these other states are doing this. We're unnecessarily uh, idling people from working, putting more people on unemployment. And so you really had uh, um, a full plate uh, uh, during uh, these couple of months of going back and forth. Maybe talk a little bit about that sure. and how that kind of changed some of your role uh, It became a much more contentious, right?
0: It absolutely did. Although even there, our goal was always to find Mm -hmm. consensus and uh, drag along at least a portion of the Democratic caucus. And you kept getting
1: more and more with each vote, it seemed, yeah.
0: Well, we certainly did. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, I'll back up a little bit because I think the COVID pandemic certainly disrupted any uh, idea of plans or order that Mm -hmm. we had coming into that, and it quickly became— a focus on, you know, what were the health concerns and then what were the economic concerns? Because we saw very early on that that was going to grow into two very different uh, crises and that they needed to be managed uh, collaboratively because they interplayed with one another. You know, it was the COVID crisis that caused the layoffs and the business closures uh, decisions by the governor that then led to the economic problems uh, that were there. And as we managed through that, uh, you know, the governor had said, and I said this many times during floor debate, but I think it's important because the governor and the health secretary, uh, as secretary, she focused solely on the health care aspects of yeah. it, which makes sense. Right. And unfortunately, I think that the health care aspects, at least um, early on and through, through the middle and even the end the health aspects were trumping the economic aspects. And, you know, the the motto, if you will, that was constantly said was you have to save lives before you can save livelihoods. And the designation of essential versus non-essential businesses, I think, really missed a key component. And it really was about, you know, essential versus non-essential and then safe and unsafe operations. And... I think everybody would agree grocery stores, very essential, but maybe not the safest place to right. be. You know, we, we saw all the, the things that grocery stores did, one-way aisles, masks, uh, plexiglass, every other register. So even a place that was deemed to be essential under the governor's order still had to figure out a way to be safer yeah. in terms of daily operations. So we started out and we said that uh, we wanted to focus on that Because we thought that all businesses should be given the same opportunities as well as treated the same. Mm -hmm. And that's something that just unfortunately did not happen. You know, we had the waiver process, which I think everyone would agree could have been substantially improved. And, you know, you had cases where direct competitors, one would get a waiver, one would not, Mm -hmm. or maybe one wouldn't even think they needed to apply because they thought that they fell under some other subcategory that was on the list of approved businesses. So you really had a lot of confusion about that. The, one of the biggest examples for me, and I shared this one on, on the floor as well was I had a surveyor, a land surveyor who is a single person operation. Mm -hmm. And he was told he could not operate. His line of business was not, um, you know, not, not deemed essential. And, Yet he was told he could go recreate in the woods. He could hike. You know, the, the, the department was encouraging him to be healthy and be outside, but he couldn't go work in the woods. And it to me, so that made no sense. So he should have gone
1: hiking and carry all of his surveying equipment. And uh, <laughs> it's kind of like a, you can't congregate in crowds of over 250. But if you're protesting, uh, then I guess apparently that's OK. I, I'm being facetious here. But I think this is what a lot of folks and I know I was hearing from a lot of my members that uh, couldn't understand, you know, wait, we can operate safely, but we're being deemed non-essential. My employees think their job is, in fact, essential to put food on their table. Uh, but this was, uh, I think, a lot of that back and forth where um, the, the, the Republicans uh, were trying to say, hey, Governor, we can do this safely Right. Um, and we can reopen. And you did begin to see a lot of Democrats starting to join you as time went on. Of like, okay, this is a, this is unnecessary. Uh, we don't need to shutter all of these businesses and uh, you know uh, sustained unemployment, particularly when we're failing to deliver unemployment checks at the same time.
0: Well, and that that actually became a huge issue, and rightfully so for many folks. Um, You know, when government tells you you can't go to work and then fails to deliver the payments that they owe you, uh, that's a big problem. And that, you know, so that was yet another factor as we were working through that. And, you know, our initial approach was treat every business the same. Senate Bill 613 would have done that and said that as long as you follow the CDC standards and do it safely and you want to reopen, it wouldn't force anybody yeah. to reopen, but if they wanted to, they could. Uh, that unfortunately was vetoed. And from there, uh, true to form, I, we started going through the individual businesses to try to build that consensus where you could find you know, people who agreed perhaps that the real estate industry, or the construction industry, or garden centers, or you know, pick different mm-hmm. ones. Uh, that could, in fact, operate safely and put safeguards in place. I, I have enormous faith in our business owners and entrepreneurs to, you know, do things that are in the best interest of not just them and their employees, but also their customers. Sure. And likewise, I have tremendous faith in us as customers. You know, we saw this on multiple areas, I think. Businesses that were deemed essential still might not get customers because we as customers said, well, I don't really need to go do that right yeah. now. Yeah. And I think even even with a full return uh, to being busy and every business being open or, or this race to green, uh, which isn't really a complete reopening <laughs> yet. Yeah,
1: green does not mean go is no. what I'm saying. No, yes.
0: it's kind of like an orange uh, between, <laughs> you know, a little bit better than yellow, I guess. But there's still some improvements, I think, that we need to – to be there with this color coding system. And I don't know if it's a green plus or a blue or what what the new color is. And as
1: we're recording right now, we don't have any ruling from the Supreme Court on the rescinding of uh, the emergency declaration. Maybe we can talk a little bit about that, but just want to note, we're we're somewhat having this discussion in limbo as to like, what does this next stage look like? Uh, depending on how the Supreme Court rules.
0: Yeah, I think the statute actually for that court case and the rescission of the emergency declaration is very clear. Yes. Uh, The statute outlines it uh, and says that the governor can start an emergency, and it says the General Assembly can stop it. And then upon passage of the resolution, the governor shall issue an order. Uh, That's the step that we're on now. He has yet to issue an order rescinding the original emergency declaration. And we went to court for it because he indicated he would not comply Mm -hmm. with the law. Uh, We'll see how the court rules. I think they kind of foreshadowed it in what is known as the Danny DeVito case, where they said the General Assembly has the power to to stop or terminate. At any time. At any time, yes. So we exercise that power. And a lot of folks are confusing it with the legislative process, which says pass the House, pass the Senate, go to the governor. Yeah. And that's not the case here. We are exercising the authority that's that is outlined in a statute that statute already went through that process Mm -hmm. so the governor claims that he should have gotten uh, the resolution in order to sign or veto it and i just don't read the law that way and i don't think the court will either Uh, but unfortunately it leaves a lot of questions for our business owners and us as citizens right now in terms of what's in effect what's not how will things be treated in terms of enforcement because as as you see in a heavily regulated world and there's lots of state licenses which the governor had previously threatened for those counties or those individuals who chose to defy his order uh, it leaves a lot of open questions that quite frankly we need to get answers to more importantly i think that we have to revisit that original law as was often Mm -hmm. the case during the 60s and 70s and 80s there was not a lot of debate on that law when it passed and it did pass unanimously, and it was signed by a Democratic governor in 1978, if I remember correctly. So I can't imagine that the legislature would have just completely abdicated its role of oversight and actually meant that the governor and one-third of one body could literally stop everything yeah. going Just forward. using
1: an emergency declaration. Correct. And 90 days uh, seems to be an outlier in the country. It that is. Most states grant 30 days, and then require uh, uh, approval. approval from yep. the legislative branch. So I, I think—and I know that there's some legislation that is even working its way to amend uh, some of these laws and even the Constitution, I believe.
0: Yeah, we're running a dual track there, both the Constitution and and the laws, because uh, I think that it's something that once this is over or as we near the end, we need to have clarity for future emergencies. What a lot of folks might not realize is we're in our 10th extension of the opioid Mm -hmm. emergency. Mm -hmm. So that's 900 days at this point. Uh, We've also got the emergency declaration for the COVID pandemic, and then we've got the one for the riots uh, that are all concurrently running.
1: So you've got some areas of the state that have three different emergency declarations in operation.
0: And I think as citizens, we need to know what the parameters are. I think the law is clear. The governor disagrees. So we're going to the, the umpires, which is the court system.
1: Mm-hmm. So um, I, I want to talk about some of the policy things that you see going forward. Uh, but, but talk about uh, the, the new role then as speaker. You, you know, you had to manage a lot of this legislation as the majority leader, um, but as the Speaker of the House, you kind of sit above this uh, on your throne up there at the front of, of uh, the, the House floor. Um, how is that different? What, what, what role do you play as Speaker uh, and relative to uh, the, the majority leaders?
0: Uh, no, it's a great question, actually. And, and quite frankly, it's not a role that I'm comfortable with yet in terms of being elevated up and up out of the debate. Um, I enjoyed being majority leader. I
1: wonder if you'll like that.
0: (laughs) Um, I enjoyed debating as well. Yes, yes. And I think that showed in terms of some of the exchanges that we had on a variety of different topics. But the role of speaker is one that, as you pointed out, is elected by the body. Uh, That's typically our very first order of business at the beginning of every session. This was unique because it was Mm -hmm. midterm. So that made it unusual. And it's still a vote of the body. And so I will serve in the role of speaker through the rest of this session, and then uh, we will have a reorganization when we come back in the fall after we have the elections and we know who's in the majority, who's the minority at that point. Uh, And while I think we will maintain the majority, and I think we will potentially expand that majority, given the the high quality of many of our candidates. we'll all have to make decisions as leaders again. You know, do you run for speaker again, or Mm -hmm. or what does the caucus want? Because in that regard, I'm no different than every other caucus member in that I get one vote. Mm -hmm. And I had several folks who, while they supported me to become speaker, made it very clear that they wish I had stayed leader. Um, And I understand and respect that. Present
1: company included, uh, only because you are are very good. Uh, It's probably your uh, training as a lawyer. Uh, that helps you to, uh, I, I think, cut incisively with arguments and your management of those issues. And I think that that was, I mean, to your credit, on full display uh, during controversial discussions, uh, but you were able to keep it on track, on topic. And that can be tough to do when you're trying to herd cats sometimes, right?
0: It can be very <laughs> difficult. Um, and one of the things that makes my my press secretary, uh, Mike Straub, very nervous is, I typically don't read from prepared comments. Um, you know, I'll have a dozen or two dozen bullet points uh, or, you know, an excerpt of case mm-hmm. law or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, supporting evidence that we're using to make that case. And uh, I know that early on he he always got a little nervous because he's like, well, what are you going to say? And, and <laughs> yeah, you, it always say, it always better worked. watch because uh, <laughs> I'll,
1: I'll tell you when I tell you.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, um, it, it's definitely a very different role, and it's it's a nonpartisan role uh, in terms of being the umpire, in terms of, you know, what's inbounds and out of bounds in terms of amendments or the breadth of debate. Uh, I tend to be a real stickler for the rules. That's very important to me. The decorum of the House floor mm-hmm. is very important to me and the institution. And I, I think uh, the first two days of Last week, so I was elected on Monday, and then we had reg- we jumped right in the regular voting session on Tuesday and Wednesday on some pretty weighty issues uh, like police reforms yep. and the uh, state system of higher education, the Pasi system. So that's our state colleges. I, I have one in the district being Millersville University, you know, it was a reform bill for them as they're seeing student enrollment drop and costs go up, uh, like any other business, they've got to realign uh, with their mission to what the students actually want. And quite honestly, we don't know what the students are going to want in the fall because we don't know what the health outcomes could be. And it, it really is a question of will it be in person, will it be online, what does that look like? So there's a lot of questions and policies and laws that we have to get in place in anticipation of reopening the educational system, early next fall. And, you know, whether that be college or K-12 through or uh, whatever, uh, programs like at trade schools need to be ready. Because uh, trade schools, for example, yeah. are very difficult to do online. Yes. I have a friend of mine who's an electrician who teaches at, at, at Avotech, and he had to develop an online curriculum. And he was talking to me about how difficult that was. <laughs> so, you know, with uh, Zoom and YouTube uh, and, and different things, you can do it but it's not something that I I believe we were readily adapted to. So, you know, I watched my own kids grow through their educational experiences. Uh, I had, well, I guess it's easier to say what grades they're going into now. Uh, I will have a senior, a 10th grader, and a 7th grader this coming year, and the online program that our school implemented was very good. I was very impressed as a parent, and the follow-up was very good, Uh, but I also recognized uh, that not all my kids excelled in that environment. Yeah. Uh, some did, uh, and, and and some did not. And it, it's just that balance, but it also proves that we're all unique individuals that learn in very different ways.
1: So uh, usually uh, at the end of uh, June, you get a long uh, kind of summer break, if you will, of not having to be in the Capitol. Uh, but given uh, one, uh, an incomplete budget. I mean, I think you've got about two-thirds done because you fully funded right. education uh, and did five months for for uh, m- most of the rest of, of state government, uh, along with what you've just noted. Hey, we don't know what the fall looks like from education standpoint or whatnot. Um uh, should we expect to see the House uh, in session uh, this, you know, July and August and, and going into September? Because usually there's that break until, what, mid-September? And right. then pretty limited going into an election year. But uh, you've got a, but another budget deadline uh, at the end of November. So there's a lot of moving parts still.
0: There certainly is. Uh, Stan Saylor, our chairman of Appropriations, and his committee did a great job of getting the first part of the budget done and aligned it with our revenues. Uh, We're gonna have some work to do between now and uh, the end of November when we expect the revenues to to essentially run out at that point. We're also waiting to see what the federal government does. We don't know yet in terms of what they may or may not provide to the state and additional aid. Uh, What we do know is we're looking at a, a pretty big deficit as we head not just this budget year, but into next budget year as well. It'll be several billion dollars. And now we did keep back a large portion of the, the COVID dollars that the federal government gave us, a little over about $1.2 billion roughly, that is kind of sitting in reserves. And I really think this is a cash flow issue more than anything because as we're reopening, you're seeing the economy. You know, I saw lots of help wanted signs driving mm-hmm. up uh, here today. So that, that's a good sign. I don't know exactly what or how quickly – things will return to a level of high efficiency, if you will, because it goes back to my comment earlier. I think us as customers will dictate a lot of that. But I know that the restaurants I've seen have all been pretty busy. Uh, Now, granted, they're at 50% capacity, I think, but they are certainly returning to a level of of being more normal. And, And that's good. But you know the other thing is there's just so many unknowns i think that will likely dictate what our session calendar is more than anything and that is a new role as speaker uh, the speaker traditionally picks what days you're in session. And one of the challenges that we had in September, for example, are some of the Jewish religious holidays Yes, yes. and, and when they fall. Uh, but I think that you know we'll be able to manage that through July and August here in terms of uh, getting done what we need to get done. But also there's a lot of groundwork that needs to happen, and that's probably one of the things that I learned in the majority leader's office. Because the way our calendar works, you're working this week on what you will be doing the next week that you're in on the committee level but Mm -hmm. at the same time you're simultaneously running the floor which was what was passed from committee last week yeah right and you've got to coordinate all of that and while it may look fairly easy one of our members used a a description that i thought was very good he said a lot of folks think this is like playing checkers you just move stuff as quickly Mm -hmm. as you can he said but the reality is it's like playing chess. You need to be looking out two, and three 3D four days. 3D, yes. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so multi level. It was it was a good analogy and it's certainly an issue that, that we'll have to deal with all through the summer as we prepare heading into the fall.
1: Well, uh, at, at the risk of uh, running on and on, because we could talk about a lot of uh, things uh, going forward. Um, but I want to have uh, a reason to have you back again Okay. to, to make you the third. Uh, a three-peat. Uh, yes, a three-peat. Um, but want to say congratulations on being elected Speaker of the House the 141st. Um, and uh, it's, it's been great knowing you for so long and to see somebody rise up that path uh, that has integrity, Uh, that cares about the Commonwealth, um, and that does so, has principles, uh, but you understand, look, this is a give and take. There's always going to be compromise at the end of the day. You never get everything you want, uh, but as long as we're moving Pennsylvania in the right direction, I know that that's what your passion is. So I wanted to say thank you, congratulations, and thanks for coming back on Brews and Views.
0: Very happy to do it and look forward to the third time. All right. (laughs) In listening to Brews and Views, a production of Commonwealth Partners' Chamber of Entrepreneurs. Find us on Facebook at Commonwealth Partners and follow Matt Briette at M-A-T-T-B-R-O-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E.